turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. We stopped last week in the middle of chapter 7. And in order to understand the next bit of Paul's writing, I think it's necessary to kind of get the historic context and to understand what is going on because Paul makes several references at the end of chapter 7 to events that we don't really know. But you can do a bit of detective work and you can kind of surmise what must have happened. As we talked about last week, Paul wrote a letter, a letter we don't have a copy of, because apparently it was very specific to the church at Corinth. And so when other folks would come and copy letters from Paul, that letter being very personal and being about a very private thing that happened at Corinth, other people just didn't make copies of it. And as a consequence, We don't have a copy of it. So we don't know what Paul said, but we know that it was apparently a very corrective letter. So much so that the Corinthians not only reacted to it with sorrow, but Paul is about to say the end result was that it brought about repentance and that it even brought about a demonstration of your own innocence in this matter. Whatever the matter was, we don't know what the matter was. Now, apparently, Paul had sent that letter to Corinth and was still waiting to find out what their reaction was to it. And while he was in Macedonia, he was hoping to run into Titus. Now, Titus is Paul's son in the faith. He even refers to him as the son in the faith in Titus 1.4. Tom, you can look that up and you can read it for everybody in a moment. And I'll tell you what, Todd, why don't you look up Galatians 2, verses 1 through 3, and we'll become a little more familiar with Titus. Because Titus was a very trusted associate of Paul's, but Titus had the distinction of being Gentile. He was not one of Paul's Jewish followers. And as a consequence, Titus kind of lands right in the middle of the Jew-Gentile distinction in the first century church and the question of circumcision. Because if you compare Titus with, say, Timothy, we read about Timothy that Paul decided to circumcise Timothy because his mother was a Jewess. And so Paul didn't see any problem with circumcising Timothy in keeping with the Abrahamic covenant because he was a descendant of Abraham. And yet when you get to the book of Galatians, Paul writes to Gentiles and has some of his harshest language against the Judaizers who wanted to circumcise Gentiles. So you can't say that across the board, Paul was anti-circumcision. He was anti-circumcision as a sign of the Abrahamic covenant for Gentiles. Why? Because Gentiles were not natural descendants of Abraham, and therefore the keeping of the circumcision was not appropriate. And so Titus, being a Gentile, was not made to be circumcised even when he was in Jerusalem with all the leaders of the Jerusalem church, who were all Jews. But they didn't have Titus circumcised. Tom, read Titus 1.4 for just a second, and then we'll look at the circumcision question. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Savior. So Paul refers to him as a child in the faith. He was raised up under Paul's teaching. He was brought to Christ by Paul. And then he was capable of establishing and teaching and setting up deacons and elders and leadership in the various churches. That's what Paul assigned him to do. So he was very helpful within the Gentile church melu. Wow, I used the word melu this morning. I worked it into a sentence. I want credit for that. As far as the circumcision is concerned, Todd's going to read for us Galatians 2, 1 to 3. And after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, and also took Titus with me. And I went up by revelation and 
communicated to them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those who are of reputation, lest by any means I might run, or had run, in vain. Yet not even Titus, who is with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. So even in Jerusalem, where the Jewish leaders of the church were, even there Titus was not compelled to be circumcised because he's a Greek, because he's a Gentile. And yet, as I mentioned before, Paul did have Timothy circumcised so that Timothy could go with him into the temple because Timothy had a Jewish mother. So Paul was very clear about those distinctions. And Titus here, a Greek, a Gentile, a son in the faith, because of his affiliation with Paul, was supposed to meet Paul in Macedonia and let him know how the church at Corinth was doing. So we can deduce from that that Titus has actually been to Corinth because Paul's going to say, when I heard news about you and I heard how well you're doing and how you justified yourself in the case that I had brought against you, how you demonstrated your innocence in this matter, I found all that out through Titus And Titus even celebrated the fact that you were obedient to him because he knew that you were a representative of me. So the order of events appears to be letter from Paul, Corinthians are upset, Paul's in Macedonia, Titus goes through Corinth, he finds out how the Corinthians are handling all that, then he goes to Macedonia to meet Paul. Now initially, as Paul said, I was upset because I couldn't find Titus. I couldn't find him anywhere. But then eventually, he said, God, who comforts the afflicted, who comforts the depressed, brought Titus to me, and I heard how you were doing. And that's where we're picking up in verse 8 of chapter 7. Paul says, For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I did not regret it, though I did did regret it, for I see that letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance, for you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, in order that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God, produces a repentance without regret. The King James says a repentance not to be repented of. And it is a repentance without regret that leads to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. That's where we left off last week. Starting at verse 11, he says, For behold, what earnestness This very thing, this godly sorrow that you had, behold what it has produced in you. So Paul is starting to see the work of God, the godly sorrow that God himself brought about to the Corinthians for the very purpose of bringing the Corinthians to the state they're now in, which was turning from their way, repenting and turning toward God, And that this godly sorrow brought about, the first thing he says it produced was vindication. Now, the NASB says vindication. I don't know what your other translations might be. But in the Greek, it's the word apologia. It's the word from which we get an apology, an explanation. So this is what it has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves. You've given an explanation of yourselves, an apology for yourselves. And what indignation, the fact that he would bring up indignation, implies that the people were upset that Paul would think this of them. And what fear, that means what reverence. He's not talking fear like, oh no, Paul's coming, hide. He's talking about reverence before God that was brought about by the godly sorrow that caused you to repent. And what longing, in other words, what desire to make it right again? 
what zeal what determination to do the things that needed to be done to bring restitution and to bring restoration to the circumstances they were in that Paul was holding them guilty for what fear what longing what zeal and what avenging of wrong whatever the wrong was whatever Paul pointed out they got busy to make it right again so in everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter so the series of circumstances appears to be Paul wrote the letter Paul brought about a sorrow for them now whether they were sorrowful because they realized they were guilty or whether they were sorrowful because they realized they were innocent and Paul thought something of them the result was that it brought about godly sorrow and repentance so that that thing whatever it was was rightly handled within the church notice what it did not do it did not split the church it made the church stronger it brought about godly repentance and the people within the church at Corinth repenting of what they had done and bringing about the vindication and the indignation and the fear and the longing and the zeal and the avenging of the wrong they took the right approach it's very very common unfortunately and I'm not going to recite stories that I know of from my many years within the church now but it's very common within the church world for someone to say you know this is not right what's going on in this church is not right and then they will break into factions and then they will decide well I'm going to do what I want to do and then another group will say well then we should change well then we should repent and then next thing you know the church is split down the middle the only way that there can be unity within the church is for everyone to agree that God's word is the standard and that if God's word convicts you that you make the appropriate changes for the good and the unity of the whole body and apparently that's what they did because Paul was very comforted when Titus comes to him and tells him you know they did the right thing they didn't argue they didn't fuss about it they didn't break up over it they didn't split the church over it they did what you said they followed the remedies so here's what he says about it verse 12 so although I wrote to you it was not for the sake of the offender nor for the sake of the one offended but that your earnestness on our behalf might be made known to you in the sight of God okay that's a complicated sentence but listen to what Paul is saying because it's deep and and it's cool that's the only adjective I could think of to describe it it's cool because Paul's perspective is always God is at work in his church and the things that God does within his church produce the glory of God and so he says when I wrote that letter to you when I wrote that upsetting letter when I wrote that letter that made you sorrowful that therefore made me sorrowful when I wrote that letter to you I wasn't writing because I was defending the offended party whoever the offended party was whatever the circumstance was I wasn't writing to you to defend the person who committed the crime I wasn't defending anybody I wasn't taking sides I wasn't saying okay now all of you get on the offended person's side or I wasn't saying all of you get on the side of the person who who did the offense instead he says what I realize now is that I wrote to you for the purpose of you finding out that you needed to be obedient to the things I was saying and your earnestness on our behalf became demonstrated and that was God's purpose in the whole thing God's purpose in the entire affair was so that you would know the importance of following what I have brought to you as gospel truth that's brilliant that's kind of astounding that Paul with that God perspective would be able to see through the events 
and not worry about who was offended or worry about who did the offending. The end result of it was God is at work in his church and he has brought about a godly sorrow that brought about repentance and now you have understood the value of what I was saying to you and that was God's purpose all along that you would be obedient to him. Isn't that smart? I lost my voice there for a minute. I went, isn't that smart? I sounded like Scooby-Doo for a moment. I did. (laughs) That's what you were thinking. Scooby-Doo. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the offender, nor for the sake of the one offended, but that your earnestness on our behalf (coughs) might be made known to you in the sight of God, so that you would understand. For this reason, we have been comforted. Where does he find his comfort? Not in the offense, not in the offender, not in the sorrow, not in the repentance. He finds it in understanding that the will of God is being worked in his church. And when he sees that demonstrated, that's his comfort. I mean, that is the ultimate comfort, isn't it? Whenever I talk to folks about the fact that God is completely sovereign and that Christ is building his church and that God knows what he is doing, I always have to add, and that's the way you want it to be. You don't want to leave the church of God in the hands of Leon. You don't want to leave it in the hands of Thaddeus. You don't want to leave the church of God in human hands. You want to know that God is sovereignly in charge of his church, and that's the only way that the church is going to be unified and effective because you understand that what we're doing here is not about you. You understand that what we're doing within the church is all about the glory of God and that his son has to be lifted up and given preeminence in the church. I do not understand, I say it openly and widely, I do not understand churches that attract people based on programs or basketball or karate lessons or I don't understand that because as soon as you don't have midnight basketball and karate lessons and smoke machines, people are going to go find someplace else that does have karate classes and basketball and smoke machines. If the purpose of the church is unity around God and his word, that church is going to survive. Because what they need, what they want, is always sheep food. And that is not only going to attract the sheep, because sheep love sheep food, but it's going to, by its very nature, drive out the goats. Because goats don't like sheep food. So as a consequence, Paul can say, for this very reason, my having written the letter and having brought about this present result, for this reason, we have been comforted. I'm glad to know you're okay. I'm glad to know that you've been obedient to the word. And besides our comfort, we rejoiced even much more for the joy of Titus. Because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. Okay, so now we're starting to find out about Titus's time in Corinth. Titus, when he went to Corinth, rather than finding out that the church was scattered and split and fighting and not liking what Paul said and rejecting the word of God, instead, he found out that they're actually doing the things that they've been told to do. And he comes back to Paul and says, they're responding. And Paul says, I'm refreshed to find out that when Titus was among you, you took care of him and you understood that he was a leader within the church. He's going to say in a moment, you obeyed him with fear and reverence. For this reason, we have been comforted and besides our comfort, we rejoiced even much more for the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For if In anything, I have boasted to him about you, I was not put to shame. Paul, at this point, is not bragging on them and saying, you know, I told Titus that you were pretty good folk. 
I told Titus that if he ever came to the church at Corinth, that he was going to find people who were obedient to the word of God and they were good people and you were, you're going to enjoy your time there and they're going to take care of you and they're going to listen and they're going to be obedient. And he says, now if I bragged on you to Titus, I'm so glad that when Titus showed up, I wasn't ashamed. Because he could have gone there and found out that the church was in disarray. And then Paul would look like a fool for having boasted about them. For if in anything I have boasted to him about you, I was not put to shame. But as we spoke all things to you in truth, so also our boasting before Titus proved to be the truth. And his affection abounds all the more toward you as he remembers the obedience of you all and how you received him with fear and trembling. Do those two words sound familiar? It sounds like Paul writing to the Philippians and saying, now that he was absent, that you should work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And whenever we talk about that, I point out that that's traumas and phobos. It's trauma, phobia. Take this stuff seriously. Don't take this stuff lightly. Treat this stuff like the word of God that it is, so that you are genuinely, reverently, fearfully afraid to mistreat it. And he says, when Titus came to you, you received him that same way, reverently. So I rejoice that in everything I have confidence in you. So far, everything is working right on schedule. I feel good. This never happens. Never is everything on schedule. But I feel good. Because we're now going to look at chapter 8. I just wanted to close up chapter 7 with that little bit of narrative and that background. Now Paul is going to talk to the Corinthians about their charity, about their giving. Don't get scared. I'm not here to talk to you about money. I'm not here to try to get an offering out of you or to pick your pocket. So if anybody's afraid... Run out the door screaming, but Paul is going to talk to the Corinthians specifically about the charity that they apparently a year beforehand had said they were going to get involved in, and now Paul is encouraging them to complete the work that they started, and he's going to use the churches of Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea as examples of the kind of charity that he's expecting out of the Corinthians. And he's going to manipulate it just a little bit. It's kind of clever writing that Paul is going to get them to do it by saying, now, you know, these other churches don't have near as much as you have. And yet they gave liberally. And you're rich. You're a well-to-do bunch of people. So you ought to also be giving. Now, notice that as Paul writes this, that the assumption in all of Paul's theology, Paul's version of Christianity, includes charitable giving. Always. Now, he, he's going to talk about whether or not you should give to your own detriment. And he's going to say that you, that you shouldn't. You should give out of what God has supplied for you. And we'll talk a bit about that. But what he's after is that there is a genuine equality within the church so that nobody has any lack and that their lack is made up for by the people who have too much and that God who is building his church, that Christ who is building his church knows how much he gave you and he knows how much other people don't have and he expects generosity and liberality across the board. It's just part of his Christian teaching. So he's able to jump straight in and talk about taking care of poor saints. But he's talking about a specific group. He's talking about the saints in Jerusalem. Turn with me for a moment. Keep your finger where you are. Turn to chapter 15 of the book of Romans. We're going to get some of the background here. And then I need somebody to look up Galatians 2.19. Romans 15, we're going to start in verse 22. Paul is explaining to the church at Rome why he had been prevented from coming to them. 
It was his intention to pass through Rome and see the church at Rome on his way to Spain. We have no idea if he ever made it to Spain. There's no historic documents that indicate that he made it there, but that was his intention. And as you know, he intended to get to Rome and visit the church. What he did not apparently expect is that he was going to go to Rome in bondage. So he writes, starting at verse 22, For this reason I have been often prevented from coming to you. But now, with no further place for me in these regions, since I have had for many years a longing to come to you whenever I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing and to be helped on my way there by you when I have first enjoyed your company for a while, But now I am going to Jerusalem serving the saints, specifically the saints at Jerusalem. Why? Because he's carrying an offering that had been given to him by the churches in Macedonia and Achaia, which is what he's about to talk about here in chapter 8. And he's going to carry that offering to the saints at Jerusalem. For Macedonia, starting at verse 26, for Macedonia and Achaia, have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Yes, and they were pleased to do so. And they are indebted to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in their, that's the Jerusalem saints, if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they are indebted to minister to them also in material things. So this is the exchange in Paul's mind. The church at Jerusalem was responsible for sending out people like Paul and people like Barnabas. They had been in Jerusalem, but they were continuing to go out. Peter would go into Jerusalem, but then he would go out. Jerusalem was the hub of first century Christianity, and Christianity spread from Jerusalem outward into the various areas of the Middle East and Southern Europe. And as a result, Paul's thinking was, the people in Jerusalem, the saints in Jerusalem, who of course are Jewish saints, are under a tremendous amount of persecution. As soon as they embrace Christ, it's difficult for them to buy, sell, trade, because that's all done in the temple, and they're being pushed out of the temple. They're being persecuted constantly, and they are poor as a result. And so their fealty to Christ has resulted in their poverty, but their love of Christ has resulted in the gospel going out to the rest of the world. So if the rest of the world has now become rich in the gospel, that rest of the world owes a debt to the saints at Jerusalem who are living in poverty because of their original fealty to Christ and Christianity. Had they not established the Jerusalem church, even in their poverty, the word would not have gone out and reached the Gentiles. So Paul sees it as a fair exchange, that the Gentiles ought to be caring for the physical needs of the saints in Jerusalem, because the saints in Jerusalem cared for the spiritual needs of the folks outside of Jerusalem. Look up 1 Corinthians 9.11 because Paul also adopts that idea. That idea of the saints in Jerusalem have given you their spiritual goods. Therefore, you owe them a debt and you ought to care for their physical needs. Paul also picks it up in 1 Corinthians 9.11, which Tom is going to read for us right now. And he personalizes it and says, now that I've brought you the gospel my spiritual things, you ought to reciprocate with material things. Read it. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? So Paul's thinking is that the people who are bringing spiritual realities of eternal life to the Gentiles who would otherwise apparently never hear it that those Gentiles owe a debt to the people who through trial, through torture, through hardships have brought them the truth of eternal life and therefore is it a big deal if you give me a meal or some clothes on my back? 
think about what I've brought to you. Okay, now I'm continuing to read in Romans 15 for just a moment. If you, if you turned away from that, don't worry about it. Paul says, yes, they were pleased to do it. The churches in Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to do this. And they are indebted to them, for the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, so they are indebted to minister to them also in material things. And therefore, when I have finished this, and have put my seal on this fruit of theirs, then I will go on by way of you to Spain. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessings of Christ. Galatians 2.19, somebody look that up, we'll just do it quickly. Galatians 2.19 says something very similar. Paul says that at the Jerusalem council, when he was meeting with the Jewish leaders of the church at Jerusalem, that the Jewish leaders said that they weren't going to put any other rule on the Gentile believers, except not to fornicate, not to drink blood. I think those are good rules across the board. I'm with those. And then he says he didn't put any other rule on us, except he requested that we remember the poor at Jerusalem. Who's got that? Galatians 2.19. What does Galatians 2.19 say? For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have no idea how I ended up there. <laughs> well, trust me. Well, now you've got me all curious. Now, let's see here. Talk amongst yourselves because now I'm curious. Yes, 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 yes. Starting at verse 7 of chapter 2 of the book of Galatians. But on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, for he who effectively worked for Peter in his apostleship to the circumcised effectually worked for me also to the Gentiles. And recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we might go to the Gentiles and they would go to the circumcised. They only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing that I was also eager to do. I'm glad I went digging for it. So, with all of that in place as background, we can now understand chapter 8, of 2 Corinthians. We can now understand what Paul is saying. Obviously, when he was in Corinth, he had said something to them about supporting the poor at Jerusalem. And he had laid out that standard that they had given you their spiritual things. As a result, you owe them physical things. And Corinth, the year before he's writing this, had decided that they were going to give a generous liberal gift. But so far, it appears not to have happened. And so Paul is saying, I'm coming to Corinth, and when I get there, I expect that gift that you talked about. And he's going to encourage it based on the fact that the other churches had all been very generous in their giving to Paul's collection that he was taking for the poor at Jerusalem. So Paul is going city to city, church to church, taking up a collection for the poor at Jerusalem, which he is then going to deliver to Jerusalem after he gets the gift from Corinth. That's the background. Now, brethren, chapter 8, verse 1, now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. Ten times in the next two chapters, Paul is going to use this word charis. He's going to use it a couple of different ways, but he's going to talk about the fact that the generosity and the liberality that is coming out of the churches of Macedonia is a grace of God. That it's not something they just decided to do in their flesh. Because let's be honest, we're all just much too greedy to think about other people and caring about other people. 
the biblical standard is to care for others the way you care for yourself and there's not a person in this room who's doing that because I guarantee when you got up this morning and got dressed and combed your hair and brushed your teeth none of you were thinking gee I wonder if Pastor Jim is dressing this way and brushing his teeth and getting cleaned up you were thinking about yourself you were standing in front of a mirror and going this is how I look. This is how I'm going to be presented to the world. And none of you were concerned about what Micah's going to look like this morning. None of you. In fact, none of you probably thought, I wonder if April's eaten anything yet. <laughs> none of you seemed concerned about anybody else because you're concerned about yourselves. And so Paul says, that the liberality, the generosity that was coming out of the churches of Macedonia, I said earlier, that's Thessalonica, that's Berea, that's Philippi, that the generosity that's coming from those churches is not only coming out of their poverty, but it's coming out of the grace of God working through them that they would understand that they should give and that they should give generously so that the poor saints at Jerusalem were well cared for. And that's the grace of God. I see people come in here sometimes and, and they'll drop a check in the box. And just because I'm here and I'm wandering around, I watch it happen. And I always think, that's the grace of God. That's people who could use that money. They could be buying Nintendo. They could be, they could be spending that on a better lunch. They could be spending that on more clothes or a better car. But because the grace of God has worked through them and in them and they cherish the word of God, they have decided to take some of their money and contribute to the work of GCA. And I understand and I recognize and I thank God for it. I mean, I'm appreciative of you all for being that way. But in the end, you're not the one I'm thanking. Because left to yourself, you wouldn't do that. But I thank the grace of God working through you that you're willing to support the gospel. It's a demonstration, according to Paul, of the grace of God working through his people. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. That in a great ordeal of affliction... Their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed. The, the actual Greek word, I want you to get a sense of this. The Greek word that is translated, their depth of poverty, means in essence as a picture word, the very bottom of the deep, the, the bottom of the well when it's gone dry. It's, it's, it's deep and it's barren. They are poor. He is stressing they are poor and yet look at the word he used for them their abundance of joy out of their deep poverty they didn't just give but they gave joyfully and this is the context in which Paul's going to bring up that God loves hilarious giving joyful giving and they are a perfect demonstration of it because we sitting in this room right here right now we every one of us can see our way clear to get through the end of the day. and We've got clothes and we drive in air-conditioned cars and, and we're fine. They weren't. They were going through what Paul calls the great ordeal of affliction. And yet they found joy in being generous. That in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord. They did it because they wanted to. Remember what Paul said to the, to the Romans, that this was a thing they wanted to do. But notice how he placed it. He said they didn't just do it according to their ability but they did it far beyond their ability. So they were actually sacrificially giving. Now Paul's going to, 
in a moment, he's going to balance that and say, I don't expect people to give to their own damage because then the church in Jerusalem is going to be wealthy and they're going to need to give to you because now you've got nothing. His goal is always that nobody have any lack or any want within the church and that God who is sovereign over his church has given people wealth for the purpose of caring for the ones who have nothing. That's God's design. That's God's plan. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much entreaty for the, the next word there, charis again. In some of your translations, it'll say for the favor. That's what the NASB says. But it's charis again. It's the same word. That the grace of God worked through them until they wanted to do this. And they begged us with much entreating for the grace of participating in the support of the saints. Now, I see this. Tom sees this. I see this happening here at GCA all the time. You guys don't see it just because you don't watch the PayPal account. Or you don't go get the P.O. box and count the money. Alex sees it happen. We support and have for many, many years now. We support an orphanage in India. How long has it been since I talked about that? I don't get up here every week and stump about, no, these kids in India don't eat unless you feed them. I don't go on about that. But the, the least we send them in any given month is enough to get them through a month. But sometimes money shows up, just people online. And they designate it, money for India. Or people drop a check in the box, money for India. And these boys are clothed, and they're healthy, and they're in school, and they're eating, and they live in desperate poverty, were it not for the gifts that come from little GCA in little Smyrna, Tennessee. We started that because... It was my birthday several years ago. I don't even remember how many years. Maybe somebody can do the math, not me. But several, several years ago, I had become aware of them. And I said, you know what? For my birthday, instead of giving me a gift, help me collect money to send to them. And I thought it was a one-time gift. And I was kind of, watch me go. You know, oh, don't give anything to me. You know, so... And so we sent them a gift that month, years ago. And you know we've sent them money every single month since then. That's not me. That's you all. That's the spirit of grace. That's the kindness. And people contact us and say, how do I give to the orphanage in India? They're begging us for the opportunity to share in the grace that God has granted us so that we can take care of these boys who wouldn't have any other support any other way. I'm just using that as an example because it seems funny here that Paul would say, they begged us with much entreating to do what? To give us money that we would take to the poor at Jerusalem. They begged us. I, for the most part, in every church I've ever been in, in my whole life, and I grew up in the church, I've never seen people beg to give. Not once. People don't walk through the door saying, please take a collection. I have so darn much money, I don't know what to do with it. Pass me the plate. That never happens. But here at GCA, we don't emphasize, well, we don't pass a plate. We had a fellow who visited here several months ago who, when he was leaving, he said, is the service over? And I said, yeah, service is over. And he went, you forgot to take up the collection. Like, I would forget that. Like, oh, darn. No, we, we've got a box on the wall, and we don't pass the plate. Next month, June 10th, is that our 16th anniversary? Yeah. 16 years this little church has survived by allowing people to give according to what God graciously works through them. I've never demanded money out of anybody. I've never put a plate in front of Okay, I, I have to moderate that 
because one Sunday I knew of a pressing need within the church, and I said to Tom, go get me something to put money in, and we passed a bag around, and everybody put money in it, and we handed it to the person with the pressing need. Okay, so one time I did that. But the rest of the time, we've just allowed people to do what God moves on their heart to do, and as a consequence, we've never had a need. And we have money in the bank, right, Tom? Yes. We're fine financially. We have no debt. Our land, our building is all paid off because we've just allowed the grace of God to do what only the grace of God can do. Which, by the way, for all you preachers out there listening, <coughs> is the way it ought to be. There should have been a big amen right behind that. There should have been, you should have been on your feet, stomping and cheering. Anyway, I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much entreaty for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. And this not as we had expected. Paul expected a smaller gift from them considering all of the torture and trouble that they were going through and considering their deep, deep poverty. Paul did not expect the generosity that was received on behalf of the saints. This, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. Okay, now this is deep. This is Paul saying, they didn't just give their money. They gave themselves. They committed their lives to this ministry, to the gospel of the ministry, and they did it because of the will of God. The will of God working through them so changed them that they became such liberal givers that they didn't just give of their food or of their clothes or of their money. They gave their very selves to this work. And Paul's amazed by it. And Paul keeps giving God credit for it. And Paul keeps saying, that's the grace of God at work. Because human beings, as I keep saying, don't act like that. Self-made man, I do my own thing. I go where I want. I'm independent. This is the land of independent manhood and manifest destiny. This is, this is me marching through the wilderness. You know, this me going my own way, doing what I want to do. That's the American dream, self-made man. And then God overwhelms these people until they give up their own stuff in their own poverty. And then they give themselves to Paul and to the work of the ministry. And so Paul is amazed by it. And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. In other words, they gave themselves to Christ. They gave themselves to the Lord. But then Paul sees that their participation in his ministry is the Lord who now has them giving them to Paul. Do I need to apply this? Okay, I'm going to, since nobody said yes or no. He's been by my side. Whoa. He's been by my side for 30 plus years. Don't you do it, or I'm, or I'm, or I'm gone. It's, it's been a good 35 years. 35 years. Why? Because he gave himself to Christ. Christ gave him to me. So I know exactly what Paul's talking about. That these people gave themselves to the Lord, and the Lord graciously and kindly then gave them to Paul. And that's exactly how I feel about Tom and about several of the other men here who have been indispensable to me. I couldn't do this work if I were not surrounded by people who cared that I'm okay and that I can get through it. Sometimes it gets hard. 
I'm just glad that God gave me people to come alongside. And I recognize that they've come alongside because God did that. Okay, I got to move on. They were begging us with much entreaty for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of the Lord. Consequently, we urged Titus that as he had previously made a beginning, in other words, they had begun the collection, they had started taking up the collection, so he would also complete in you, here's that word again, this gracious work as well. So you've begun well. You've begun with generosity. You've begun there in Corinth with the idea that you were going to give of your liberality and that when I go to Jerusalem, I'm going to have a good gift to bring to the saints there. Now complete it. It's not just about good intentions. Even though so much of what goes on in the modern world seems to be based on good intentions, whether or not there's any follow-through, Paul says the intention is not enough. You need to now do what you intended to do. But just as you abound in everything, and now he's going to list all the things that they're abounding in, in faith, in utterance. Remember in his previous letter to them, all the ink that he devoted to the speaking in tongues and the various utterances that they had, these gifts of the Spirit, faith and utterance, And knowledge, understanding, gnosis, knowing what the will of God is for you. And in all devotion, in all earnestness. And in love, in sacrificial love, we inspired in you. You have all these things. Just as you have abounded in everything, in faith, in utterance, in knowledge, in earnestness, and in love that we inspired in you, see that you abound in this gracious work also. So it is part and parcel of Pauline Christianity. Part and parcel of Paul's entire gospel is that the Spirit of God and the grace of God will make you generous toward other people who don't have what you have. Now, verse 8, I'm nearly done. I'm nearly to the point I wanted to get to. I am not speaking this as a command, but as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. Okay, here's where Paul gets clever. Paul says, look, I'm not commanding you to give. If you don't want to give to the Jerusalem saints, that's okay. That's no, all right. But let me remind you that the churches in Macedonia that are really, really poor, that they gave way above and beyond what they were capable of giving. Now, I'm not trying to shame you. I'm not trying to make you feel bad about your giving. But I'm just saying that the churches in Macedonia, wow, are they generous. And are they liberal? And are they giving to this work? And when I go to Jerusalem, he's about to say, there are going to be saints there that are going to glorify God because of the generous gift that they received. They're going to be praying for and glorifying the churches that gave them this help. Now, I'm not trying to say you got to give. But but it would sure be nice if they could also be praising you in this. I'm not saying this as a command. I'm not speaking it as a command, but as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. Okay, now think about that phrase, the sincerity of your love also. Because this is another example of how good intentions don't get the job done. Despite the fact that they could say to Paul a year before that, oh yeah, we want to be in on that. We want to give. Oh, yeah, we want to take up a collection. We want to give. We want to do that. Yeah. Because why? Because we love the saints in Jerusalem. Look at what they've done for us. They've sent you. They've supported you. You're here telling us the words of eternal life. And so we love the folks at Jerusalem. Paul says, yeah, prove it. 
prove that your love for them is a genuine and a sincere love. And the genuine and sincere love is demonstrated by the fact that you're willing to sacrifice for them. It's not enough to just say, yeah, I love you. And you see this kind of thinking all the way through the Bible. It's not enough to see a man who has one set of clothes and they're all ratty and he's practically naked. It's not enough for you to just say, be clothed and not clothe him. If you see a hungry man, it's not enough to say, be filled and not feed him. And so time and again, you see this concept in the Bible that it's not about good intentions. It's about the follow-through and the demonstration of the grace of God that exists within you, flowing through you to the others for the purpose, for the result that they will praise God because of the grace of God that flowed through you to them. It's never about you getting credit. It's never about them saying, wow, you are really a kind and a generous person. If it's done with godly intent, the glory all goes to God, and that's the purpose for which he worked graciously through you in order to provide the needs of somebody who wouldn't have anything otherwise. The reason that God is doing this is not so that you get built up and that your ego is demonstrated. It's so that the demonstration of God and his good grace is demonstrated through you so that God gets the glory. That's always, always the purpose. I'm not speaking this as a command, but as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. For you know the grace, there it is again, the charis of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's his example now, that though he was rich, he became poor. How rich was Christ? What did he own? Everything. He owned everything. We think that gold is how we get rich. Um, storing up some gold in my safe. I bought a safe because I got some gold. Uh, uh, keep it safe. Gold. Well, all the gold on all the planets in all the systems belong to him. Which is why the streets of heaven are talked about as paved with gold. Because as far as he's concerned, the very thing that we think is the most precious, the gold that we live and die for, that men go to war for, the gold he uses for pavement. <laughs> That's what it means to him. Because he owns everything. Okay, when he was on the planet and he was talking to his disciples, and he said, foxes have dens, you know, birds have nests, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. How poor did he become? He became so impoverished that ultimately Roman soldiers could just take him and kill him. And that he didn't even get an attorney. That he laid himself down completely to the wrath of God on behalf of the people he was sacrificially dying for. That's humility and that's zero interest in the things of this world. You don't think while he was here that if he wanted to live in a castle, he could? If he wanted to drive the best, well, they didn't have cars back then. If he wanted the best camel, you don't think that he could have gotten like the deluxe XL version camel with leather seats? And we won't get into the interior. So you don't think that he could have magnified himself when his disciples had to pay taxes. He said, go over and catch a fish, open its mouth, there will be a coin in there, pay the taxes. He didn't care. He didn't care about money. A man who can make money come out of fish can be a rich guy if he wants. If you know how to do that, you're fine. You're paying all the taxes of everybody if you know how to do that. He had complete and utter mastery of the physical world that we all live in, and he was disinterested in it completely. But he said to his father, return me to the glory that I had with you before the worlds were formed. 
So though he was magnificently rich, a kind of rich we can't conceive of, ownership of absolutely everything, nevertheless he became poor for our sakes. Now Paul uses that as your example. And he says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for your sake he became poor that you, through his poverty, might become rich. You want to know how rich you're going to be? Here, let me tell you how rich you're going to be. You are referred to as joint heirs with Christ. What can God give Christ as a reward for his obedience to the Father? Christ is going to be lifted up in the economy of God. And you're going to be joint heir in that. So really, if you know that he, though he was fabulously rich, became dirt poor so that you can ultimately be fabulously rich, well, then how generous ought that make you? I mean, the stuff of this world that's passing, that's fleeting... You can't feed somebody. You can't clothe somebody. You can't give somebody a, a tank of gas when they need it. You can't, you can't show the grace of God in your life even though you walk around talking about, I believe in sovereign grace. My intentions are good. I believe in grace. Intent, intent, intent. But Paul says follow through and demonstrate the grace of God. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. And I give my opinion, Paul now writing, I give my opinion in this matter, for this is to your advantage, who were the first to begin a year ago, not only to do this, but to desire to do this. Paul is saying, you desired it. You've talked about it. You're going to do it, you say. But if you follow through, and the grace of God is demonstrated in you the way it's been demonstrated in these impoverished churches, that is to your advantage. And that's not the way the world thinks of giving. The world thinks if you give too much, that's to your disadvantage, that you're not going to have as much money to go do the things you want to do. But he says, following through with the grace of God and being generous and being liberal with what God has given you is to your advantage. Get this right. Giving is good for you. Amen. Giving is good for you. It teaches you not to cling to the stuff of this world that's all going to burn anyway. It teaches you how to demonstrate the grace of God to an unbelieving world. To demonstrate that God is still alive and well. And that Christ is still building his church. And that the human characteristics that exist all over the planet don't exist in his church. The church is different. You get that? I don't practice it like I believe. That's a very good statement. I don't practice it like I believe it. And that's exactly what Paul is saying. The intentions have to be followed through for it to be the demonstration of the grace of God. And the end result of it, I'm going to say again, we'll, we'll get there next week. But the end result of it is many people glorify God because of your generosity. So it's one thing for you to glorify God through your generosity, but then many other people end up glorifying God because of your generosity. And that act of glorifying God and bringing glory to God is the purpose for which the church exists. So I hope this has encouraged you all and that you recognize that Paul's gospel includes every aspect of your life being devoted to the things of God and the glory of God, including the stuff he has very kindly and graciously allowed you to have in this lifetime.
Make sense? Amen. Make sense? Yes. Yes. If it God offered special favor to the people who recognized chosen people, the sons of Abraham, the land of Israel, how much more is he going to favor the people who favor his own self? Yes, so true. All right, well, if you all get it, if that's all clear, then say goodbye to the Internet folks. Thank you for listening to this Sunday morning message from Grace Christian Assembly. Please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org and join us next time when we gather around the Word and study God's sovereign grace.